Good afternoon, and welcome to Outer Cape News on WOMR. My name is Matthew Dunn. This is your update on what's happening on the Outer and Lower Cape, drawing on stories reported in the pages of the Provincetown Independent, the Provincetown Banner, the Cape Codder, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. In this week's edition, Beth Dunn has stories about the return of right whales to Cape Cod, as well as details about the ongoing financial mess in Wellfleet. I've got a story about Provincetown's plans to create housing on the site of the soon-to-be former police station on Shankpainer Road, as well as an update about the subject of the hours-long standoff in Provincetown in February. Weather Will has the week off again this week, but we do expect him back next week. Ira Wood is here, and he's got a matter of opinion about why you don't have to love thy neighbor. The first North Atlantic right whale mother and calf pair of the season arrived in Cape Cod Bay last weekend. An aerial survey team from the Provincetown-based Center for Coastal Studies right whale ecology program spotted the mother and calf on March 18th. The mother is known to scientists as Portia. She and her newborn were previously spotted in late December in waters off the coast of Georgia, where the female whales typically go to give birth. The arrival of the pair is exciting because of the declining state of the right whale population and the hope it represents for the future of the endangered species. The North Atlantic Right Whale Consortium released a report in the fall estimating that there were only about 340 of the animals alive in 2021. Because their numbers are so severely depleted, Charles Stormy Mayo, director of the Right Whale Ecology Program, said any sighting of a healthy calf is a special event. Each year, most of the world's remaining North Atlantic right whales spend time in Massachusetts waters as they migrate between the Canadian Maritimes and southern waters off Georgia and Florida. Earlier this month, a juvenile right whale swam almost the entire length of the Cape Cod Canal before heading back to Buzzards Bay, while a second juvenile fed near the canal's outlet on Cape Cod Bay, causing a nearly 22-hour closure of the canal. During the March 18th survey, Mayo said the team spotted a total of 52 right whales that included Portia and her new offspring. Right whales have been seen from the shore off Herring Cove in Provincetown every day since March 16th. This season has seen the birth of 12 new right whales in their southeastern birthing grounds, one of which did not survive. North Atlantic right whales are protected under the Federal Endangered Species Act and the Marine Mammal Protection Act. That designation legally prohibits boats and aircraft from approaching within 500 yards of them and also limits vessel speeds in certain areas, including Cape Cod waters. There is a seasonal 10-knot speed restriction in the bay from March 1st to April 30th that can be extended if the whales remain in the area. The greatest two dangers right whales face are entanglement in traditional rope fishing gear and boat strikes. 
Five of 30 entanglements in Cape Cod Bay reported to the Center for Coastal Studies last year involved right whales. Cape Cod lobstermen are required to keep their rope-managed traps out of the water from February 1st until May 15th. The restriction can last longer if the whales linger here. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration is running an experiment with on-demand fishing gear designed to minimize the time that lengths of rope stay in the water. But that program does not apply to Cape Cod Bay. The deadline for candidates to file papers to run for the Provincetown Select Board has passed, and four candidates will compete for two open seats on the board. The two current select board members whose terms are up this year both decided not to run for re-election. Bobby Anthony had previously announced that he would be stepping off the board, and Louise Venden took out papers to run this year, but ultimately chose not to return them by the March 21st deadline. The four candidates who will appear on the March 9th ballot are Eric Borg, Austin Knight, Austin Miller, and Gordon Siegel. Voters can choose two of the four candidates. The Provincetown Independent will publish candidate interviews and host a candidate forum in April. Eric Borg is a co-owner of the Provincetown Brewing Company on Bradford Street. He currently serves on the Zoning Board of Appeals and is vice chair of the Visitor Services Board. This is his first run for elected office. Austin Knight is a self-employed remodeler and contractor. He served on the Provincetown Select Board from 2007 to 2014 and was chair of the board for about two and a half years. He resigned in May 2014, one year into his third term, in a year that was tumultuous for town government. He ran for select board in 2020 as well, coming in third in a contest with Anthony and Venden, who were each running for re-election. Austin Miller is a compliance officer for NBT Bank and works on home solar panel financing. Miller moved to Provincetown in 2020 and joined the year-round market rate rental housing trust and the Community Housing Council in 2021. He is currently the vice chair of both groups. This is his first run for elected office. Gordon Siegel has held a number of jobs in town, among them real estate broker, retail store owner, guest house owner, and partner in a restaurant. Siegel served on the Finance Committee twice, once in the late 1990s and again in 2012 and 2013. He has also run for select board twice, once in 2014 and once in 2017. Nineteen months after Wellfleet was supposed to close its books on fiscal year 2021, the town finally received that year's audit from Powers & Sullivan. The audit is accompanied by a management letter that outlines three material weaknesses, along with 14 additional comments on the finance department's deficiencies in internal control. A material weakness is a significant misstatement of the town's finances that was not prevented, detected, or corrected in a timely basis, according to the management letter. At a meeting on March 14th, Powers and Sullivan's Renee Davis told the select board that the first material weakness in the audit was also identified in 2020. 
The town's cash accounts continued to be unreconciled in 2021. When the reconciliation was finally accomplished at the end of January 2023, the auditors reported an unknown variance of $325,000. It was a positive variance, however, in that the town's bank balance was found to be $325,000 higher than the book balance. The two other material weaknesses recorded in the 2021 audit had also been mentioned in the auditor's 2020 management letter and relate to the town's documentation and reconciliation of receivables, such as taxes and grants. According to the audit, the town accountant and the town's tax collector did not compare records to confirm the amount of outstanding taxes. Additionally, the amounts in the receivable accounts did not have adequate supporting documentation, such as journal entries and receipts. The audit described the third material weakness as the town's failure to record transactions to the town's general ledger in a timely and consistent manner. Of the 14 additional comments in the 2021 management letter, 12 were either unresolved or partially resolved carryovers from 2020. Although the 2021 audit is alarming, town administrator Rich Waldo said Town Hall has been working to resolve the problems. He said that none of the information was new, and it's important that the public know the situation, even if it stings. Although Waldo said that Powers and Sullivan has done a good job and given Wellfleet what it needs, during the March 14th meeting, Members of the select board questioned Wellfleet's long-standing collaboration with the auditing firm. Select board chair Ryan Curley noted that Powers and Sullivan did not issue a management letter in 2019 when the town's finances began to get out of control. Powers and Sullivan has been the town's auditor for the past 27 years. Last year, the town asked for bids on the auditing contract, but only Powers and Sullivan responded. The town currently has a $30,000 contract with Powers and Sullivan for the fiscal 2022 audit, with an option to extend the contract for two more years. Whether that option will be exercised is still to be determined, according to Waldo. Waldo said he believes the town is rounding a corner. While the 2022 audit will contain lingering issues from the town's financial meltdown in 2020, the town manager said it's looking a lot better than previous years. Waldo said things will continue to improve. It's just going to take time. Journalist and documentarian Bill Lichtenstein has uncovered major investigative scoops, won a Peabody Award and a Guggenheim Fellowship, but his career in media began when he was 14 as a volunteer at Boston's WBCN radio station in 1970. WBCN rode the city's youth-driven counterculture wave with a mix of trend-setting rock and roll, hard-hitting news coverage, community-oriented programs, and revolutionary political action. The Wellfleet Public Library is hosting a free screening on Saturday, March 25th, of Lichtenstein's award-winning documentary, WBCN and the American Revolution. For Outer Cape residents who spent formative years in Boston during the late 1960s and 70s, the film is sure to strike a chord. WBCN was groundbreaking in many ways, not least in launching the careers of many pioneering female DJs. 
One of them was Deborah Ullman of East Ham, who was doing ad sales for the station at the time, and occasionally filling in on air. By the spring of 1971, Ullman was the station's first full-time female DJ, occupying her 6 a.m. slot at WBCN for the next year and a half. Deb would later have a show on WOMR. You can see Bill Lichtenstein's documentary on WBCN Saturday, March 25th at 2 p.m. at the Wellfleet Public Library. For Outer Cape News, this is Beth Dunn. A Provincetown man who was taken into custody after an hours-long standoff with the Cape Cod SWAT team on February 28th is currently being held at Bridgewater State Hospital. Bridgewater is a medium-security facility for male defendants suffering from mental illness who are incarcerated or facing criminal charges. Just after 9 a.m. on February 28th, police were dispatched to a West End home in Provincetown. Police reports state that Jonathan Bridges had a BB gun, made suicidal statements, and at one point was holding two roommates hostage. The police report stated that he also had an axe and a machete. A cavalcade of officers from across the Cape arrived to defuse the situation and help extract the roommates from Bridges' residence. Shortly after noon, Cape Cod SWAT team vehicles could be seen racing up Route 6 toward Provincetown. Both roommates were able to escape by 2.30 p.m. with assistance from the SWAT team. The standoff with Bridges lasted almost six more hours before he was detained. One of the roommates later told the Provincetown police that Bridges had ingested hallucinogenic drugs and intended to commit suicide by cop, according to the police report. The next day, Bridges was charged with four felonies, two counts of kidnapping, one count of assault and battery with a dangerous weapon, and one count of firearm possession. Bridges appeared in Orleans District Court on March 17th for a hearing to determine whether the defendant poses a risk to public safety, but his attorney, Henry Curtis of the Committee for Public Counsel Services, asked Judge Robert Welsh to postpone the hearing to April 7th. Curtis told the court that his client was emotional, hysterical, and unable to make eye contact. Welsh granted the request. Judge Welsh also granted Curtis's request for a competency hearing, also to be held on April 7th. If the competency hearing finds that Bridges is unable to stand trial, he'll stay at Bridgewater until he's well enough to appear in court. After his arrest on February 28th, Bridges was brought to Cape Cod Hospital for immediate evaluation and then sent back to the Provincetown Police Department for booking. Bridges was transferred to the Barnstable County Jail in Bourne before being taken to Falmouth Hospital on March 6th, according to court filings. On March 9th, he was transferred from Falmouth Hospital to Bridgewater. Provincetown has for years planned to build housing at the site of the old police station on Shankpainer Road. A vision of 24 studio and one-bedroom units in 2019 
was expanded to 36 apartments following a town meeting vote last year that permitted four-story housing projects on Shankpainer. On March 13th, the select board discussed taking the project in a new direction by seeking a developer who would build only market rate and middle-income rentals at the site. Middle-income housing has been a missing link in the Outer Cape's housing crisis. It's often discussed, but is very difficult to create, because nearly all state and federal subsidies are reserved for lower-income households. State and federal housing funds target people earning less than 80% of the area median income. The federally defined number for Barnstable County in 2022 was $60,900 for a single person and $69,600 for a couple. That means that two people, both earning $35,000 per year, make too much to qualify for almost all the affordable rentals that have been built here. Firefighters, police officers, teachers, and healthcare workers are just a few of the middle-income professionals who can't live in affordable rentals. The developer building 65 apartments at the former VFW site on Jerome Smith Road in Provincetown tried to include 16 apartments for middle-income earners, but ultimately had to strip that income bracket from its plans due to complex federal funding rules. Now, at the Shankpainer site, the town is looking for a plan that doesn't depend on state and federal money at all. The select board authorized a formal request for proposals last week that asks developers for plans for middle-income or market-rate housing with no units reserved for buyers or renters below the 80% of AMI threshold. The RFP does allow for some units reserved for those making between 80 and 120% of AMI. The 120% of area median income threshold was just over $91,000 for one person or $104,000 for two people in 2022. Town manager Alex Morse told the board that the request was designed to attract smaller, more regional developers, although it remains to be seen what responses the town will get. Morse described the RFP as a good first step to see who might want to build market-rate housing without major financing from the state and how they would plan to do it. The board also discussed whether it might be possible to expand the project further by making a deal with the Provincetown United Methodist Church, which sits on just under an acre of land adjacent to the old police station site. The old police station sits on four-tenths of an acre. The annex that hosts the soup kitchen in Provincetown, the Provincetown Food Bank, a Homeless Prevention Council office, and a thrift store, could potentially be torn down and rebuilt in a joint project, Morse said, with new facilities for those groups on the ground floor and apartments above. Morse said that there had been initial meetings with the church to discuss the idea and that the new construction could help meet the needs of Skip and the church. Those discussions were not far enough along to include the idea in the request for proposals, which was unanimously approved by the board. In a few months, when the responses are due, Provincetown may learn if it can find the missing link of market-rate rental housing 
and if anyone wants to build it. Lack of an on-site manager at a popular North Truro vacation spot last summer resulted in problems for guests as well as the neighborhood, and the Board of Health wants to make sure that history does not repeat itself. Sandbars Inn at 570 Shore Road has 17 rental units. 16 are for guests, and one is reserved for a property manager. In Truro, health regulations require that a manager live on the site if there are more than 10 rental units. Sandbars requested a variance from the on-site management requirement for the upcoming summer, and the health board denied the request at its March 7th meeting. This was the first time Sandbar's owner, Beech Tree Property Holdings of Maryland, had requested such a variance. The reason, according to the company's lawyer, is the difficulty in finding someone to take the job of staying on the property for the season. Attorney Matthew Tucker explained that Sandbar's was asking to be allowed to operate like a property with 10 or fewer units, which has a manager who does not live on the premises. Tucker conceded that there had been a problem with the on-site management last summer. Apparently, somebody who was going to be the on-site manager resigned after the season started. Residents of the neighborhood submitted letters to health officials outlining some of those problems and urging them to deny the variance. Issues cited included Sandbar's guests walking over fragile dunes onto adjacent properties, unrestrained dogs of Sandbar's guests roaming the beach and private property areas beyond the dunes, and an unattended beach fire on the property. Neighbors also claimed the number of occupants had soared since there was no one there to monitor the room occupancy limit. They provided health officials with a string of unfavorable reviews posted online by guests of Sandbar's last summer. Tucker told the board that Beech Tree would now require their property management company, Vecasa, to have a quicker response time. When Tracy Rose, who chairs the Board of Health, asked where Vecasa's office was located, Tucker said they don't have an office on the Cape and that the person who would manage the sandbars for Vecasa this summer lives in the town of Dennis. Ultimately, the board voted unanimously to deny the variance with one abstention. The Brewster Select Board on Monday voted not to support a citizen's petition asking town meeting voters to ban reusable plastic food containers and cutlery by the fall of 2024. Several local business owners told the board that they were trying to do the right thing by recycling and reducing the dependence on plastic, but that the cost of making the switch to alternatives would be too much. The citizens' petition was filed by Vic Roberts and supported by Madhavi Venkatesan, founder and executive director of Sustainable Practices and an architect of the municipal plastic water bottle bans currently in place in all 15 Cape Cod towns. Venkatesan said that cost does not take into consideration the long-term consequences of these plastic products. She said that the cost of convenience is higher and that we only recycle about 12% of all plastic. 
Select Board member Mary Chafee said that Brewster had been at the forefront of recycling efforts and had committed significant resources to install hydration stations. She said she supports reducing our dependence on plastic, but that the community impact of a ban needed to be taken into account and that many local restaurants are still reeling from pandemic-related business losses. The vote to support the petition was one in favor, two opposed, and two abstaining, but the matter isn't going away anytime soon. Robert's petition will be brought to town meeting, and Venkatesen said she plans to circulate similar petitions capewide. Wellfleet plans to celebrate the start of construction on the Chequesset Neck Bridge with an event at the Gut on Friday, March 31st at 11 a.m. The bridge is part of the Herring River Restoration Project, and the Gut is the strip of sand that connects Great Island to the mainland in Wellfleet. The $31 million bridge with nine sluice gates and access ramps to the water will replace the dike at Chequesset Neck Road, which has restricted tidal exchange since 1909. The construction of the bridge is the first phase of the restoration work. State and federal elected officials and agency partners are invited to join the party, according to an announcement from town administrator Rich Waldo. For Outer Cape News, my name is Matthew Dunn. Do you have good neighbors? I have the best neighbors in the world. They have a beautiful house in the city. They hate cold weather. They don't have children. They're too old to have dogs. They love to travel. And totally the best trait of all, they're almost never around. For over four decades, they've opened the house on Memorial Day weekend and drained the pipes on Columbus Day. In season, they drive out on Friday afternoons and go back to the city on Sunday nights. They don't rent. They never have parties. They wake up late and spend most days reading. There's always a smile and a wave, a hearty hello and a vigorous goodbye. But I've never felt we had anything in common. And even better, they feel the same about us. Of course... Like most second homeowners from the city, there's no job too small to hire someone else to do. So at any given time, an army of local guys will arrive with an armada of deafening power equipment. But leaf blowers, stump grinders, and chainsaws notwithstanding, they're the absolutely best neighbors a pair of writers can have. The trouble is... They're getting older, and it's only a matter of time before they sell the house. People who work at home tend to be very particular about their neighbors. We don't want music blasting. We don't want unannounced visits, or barking dogs, or teenagers who play the drums, or children picking our strawberries. On a freezing cold night before a midwinter visit, sure, I get it, but... 
We'd rather not live next to people who make a habit of calling to ask if we wouldn't mind turning on their lights and heat to make their house more cozy before they arrive. All neighbors take a bit of training. When we first moved to the Cape, we alienated a lot of people who dropped in without calling or felt free to take tools from our shed or let their dogs crap all over our property. It's not that I haven't dreamed of having really close neighbors, people who pitch in during natural disasters or volunteer to plow your driveway or take in your mail when you're out of town or look after each other's pets. But the price you pay for that kind of familiarity is privacy. And my mutual detachment from the neighbors has worked out just fine for all of us. The trouble is, when your neighbors age out and sell their home, you never know what you're going to get. A quiet single mom teacher who lives with two intellectual kids, or a divorcing couple whose son is heavy into drugs. A wholesome athletic family from Hartford, or a pair of lawyers who intend to finance their retirement through We Need a Vacation. Or maybe a retired right-wing cop who likes to invite his buddies over to drink on the deck. I had a friend whose new neighbors camped on the land next door to his house while their house was being built and showed up twice a day to use his shower and bathroom all through July and August. Maybe you'll get a landscaper who has three big trucks with backup beepers and workers who show up every morning at 5.30 a.m. Or a suburban gardener who sprays his perfect lawn with Roundup. Or some sharp-ass con man who intends to rent the house out every weekend for weddings. Or maybe even the ultimate new neighbor nightmare, some Wall Street finance types who intend to tear down the house next door, build a 10,000-square-foot mega-mansion, and think of you as trailer trash. So, contrary to biblical teachings, it's not really necessary to love thy neighbor. Just appreciate them while you can. Because when they finally move, it could be a lot worse. I'm Ira Wood, and that's my opinion. And that does it for this week's edition of Outer Cape News. Thanks go to the Provincetown Independent, the Provincetown Banner, the Cape Codder, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. Thanks also to Beth Dunn and Ira Wood for their contributions to the program. And thanks to Henry and Jane Fisher and Jacob Greenberg for being sustaining members of Outer Cape News. And now stay tuned for Friday Afternoon Jazz. It's Stirred Not Shaken with Hank and Andy on listener-supported community radio. WOMR. Yo, 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 yo,